Scripture reading this evening will be read from John 17, verses 1 and 2. John 17, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people, that he, he might give eternal life all those you have given him. Good evening. We're glad you're here tonight. We're very thankful for the opportunity to be together to worship God. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17 as we think about the theme tonight, authority and worship, and the song that we sang a moment ago, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And really, that is the thrust of our desire here at Olive Branch, and it ought to be the desire of every person to do everything according to the will of Almighty God. Paul said in Colossians 3 at verse 17 that everything we do, we need to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks unto God the Father through him. We have been looking at a series of lessons that have centered on the theme of worship. And tonight we're going to talk for a moment or two about authority in worship. And again, as we look to what the Bible has to say, I would underscore and emphasize the fact that everything we do in matters of faith must be governed by what the scriptures say. And I don't think there's anything wrong with appealing to scripture. I don't think that we ought to be ashamed when we appeal to a thus saith the Lord for matters of faith. And so tonight we're going to be talking for a moment or two about authority in worship. As we begin our study, I want to direct your attention to John chapter 17, the passage read just a moment ago by Jordan. And the first thing that I want to call your attention to is the criterion for worship. When we talk about the criterion for worship, really what we're emphasizing is the standard for worship. What is the standard? I would submit unto you that our standard for worship is the word of God. In other words, there is a divine pattern that has been given unto us and we are to honor that pattern if we're going to be pleasing to him. And if you go back and look at the Old Testament, this idea, this concept of a pattern, it's not foreign to scripture. In the Old Testament, those people had a pattern to follow. For example, there was a pattern given for the building or the erection of the tabernacle. And by the same token, when we talk about our worship to God, when we emphasize the fundamentals of the faith, there is a pattern that we are to follow. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, Hold fast to the form or pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So there is a divine pattern that we follow. Now having said all of that, I want you to consider with me, first of all, as we think about the criterion for worship and the fact that the Word of God is our pattern, it is the standard, or uh, it is that which we appeal to. First of all, there is what I would submit unto you, the delegation of authority in our worship to God. We begin by noting the authority of God the Father. Now back in Exodus chapter 15 at verse 18, Moses tells us that God will reign forever and ever. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 that God is above all. 
Now, having said that, look, if you would, at John 17, verses 1 and 2. Jesus here is praying to God the Father in the shadow of the cross. And so John said, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Now listen to him in verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh. That implies that God the Father manifests a realm of authority. And as I said a moment ago, God is a sovereign being. He is above all. He is over all. He reigns forever and ever. You remember in Daniel chapter 4 at verse 32, Daniel acknowledged this much in the long ago. Daniel said that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever he wills. And so again, that simply says that God is over all. Now the Bible tells us in Psalm 99 at verse 1 that the Lord reigns. Now having said all of that, I want you to consider with me if you would the authority of Christ. And really what we're emphasizing here is that God the Father has delegated authority to Jesus Christ the Son. Now look again at verse 2. Jesus said that God the Father had given him authority over all flesh. This is not a new concept. This is not something that the apostles had, had come to hear for the first time. But rather back in John chapter 5 at verse 27, Jesus, of course, in that context is talking about the resurrection of the dead and the judgment to come. And in verse 27 he said, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. When we talk about the judgment of Almighty God, what we need to understand is that God the Father has given Jesus the authority to judge mankind. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse 10, we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand before the Lord. As Paul again would say in Romans chapter 14, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall give an account of himself to God. And of course, that being the second member of the Godhead. Now in Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus would say, all authority, or some translations would say, all power, has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain and he was in the presence of Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah appeared on that occasion. God the Father spoke forth from heaven. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he said, hear him. So what's God the Father saying? He's saying that I have given the Son authority and you need to listen to the Son. And so we talk about the authority of God the Father, the authority of Jesus Christ the Son, but now I want you to think with me for a moment about the authority of the apostles and the New Testament writers. So with that in mind, drop down now and look at chapter 17, verse 6 of the book of John. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. 
they are yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And so Jesus, of course, has been instructing the apostles. He has been talking unto them about heavenly things, spiritual things. And they, in turn, would take what they have learned and what they would receive by way of the Holy Spirit later. And they would do what? They would teach all flesh, all men. As a matter of fact, back in verse 3, listen to what Jesus said. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The apostles would be responsible for making known Jesus Christ and God the Father. Their desire, their goal, spread the gospel so that men and women might enjoy a relationship with the Lord. Now drop down and look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe on me through their word. And so here we have the authority of the apostles and the New Testament writers. Now back in chapter 16, verse 13 of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus was talking to the apostles. And really, if you look at, when you look at John chapter 14, you need to look at John chapters 14 through 16 as one section. Jesus is talking to the apostles here. And he's telling these men that they are going to be endowed with special revelation from whom? From Almighty God. And they would take that revelation, they would write it down in human words, and thus those who would read what they had recorded, what they had written, would be informed about the will of God. Now Paul, when Paul wrote to the saints in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, he said, if any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul was writing what? He was writing the commandments of the Lord. Did the apostle Paul have authority to do that? Absolutely. Now, here's what you need to see. We talk about the authority of God the Father and then the authority of Jesus Christ the Son, the authority that has been given unto the apostles and other New Testament writers. And then we find that authority is further delegated through what we call scripture, or some of us call it our Bible. Now having said that, let me call your attention to several passages of scripture I think that emphasize this point. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, Paul said all scripture, every scripture is inspired of God. The book that we hold in our hands that we call the Bible, it is inspired of God. It was not something that men and women originated in their own feeble minds. Peter would say no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. And all he meant there was that the scripture did not originate with man. He said holy men of God spoke 
as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. And so we have inspired men. They took what the Holy Spirit revealed unto them. You remember what Jesus said? Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So they took the truth that was revealed unto them. They wrote it down in human words. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul would say that he received revelation from Almighty God. He said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul then was writing the commandments of the Lord. Now we talk about the authority of Scripture. Again, Paul said all Scripture, inspired of God, is profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine simply means teaching. What is it we appeal to in matters of faith? It's the doctrine of Christ. We are to walk in accordance with the doctrine of Christ. 2 John 9. Now Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And the appeal there is to simply look to what the scriptures have to say. To look to the word of the living God. Now we talk about the importance of this book. And we talk about the authority of scripture. Look again at what Jesus said in verse 20. We talk about the authority of scripture and the importance of unity among those who believe in Jesus Christ. What is it that's going to be able to, to bring about unity among those who believe in the Lord? Well, listen to what Jesus said again. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me or in me through their word, that is through the words of the apostles, through the words of those men who were inspired by Almighty God. Well, what's the purpose? That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. We live in a fractured religious world. The religious world today, the religious landscape at large, is fractured into multiple denominations. Well, that's contrary to what God in his will has revealed. God's desire is that, be, that we may be one. How then are we going to be one? The only way that I know that we can be one in matters of faith is to follow the, the apostles' doctrine. That is, to follow the words of the apostles based on John chapter 17, verse 20. And then listen, if you would, to what Luke said in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. He said that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. That is, we talk about the authority of Christ, the authority of Scripture. That's what we're appealing to. Now let me make this observation. We said a moment ago that Jesus has all authority. And Jesus delegated a certain amount of authority to the apostles. We talk about the authority of the apostles and the New Testament writers and then the authority of Scripture itself. When, when Jesus was on this earth, what law did he live under? He lived under the Mosaic dispensation, didn't he? When he died on Calvary's cross, what happened to that dispensation? According to Paul in Colossians 2 verse 14, it was nailed to the cross. In other words, it was abrogated. It was taken out of the way. Now, Jesus legislates the activities of his body. He's the head of the, of the body, which is the church, according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. 
If Jesus is the head and he is in heaven, and Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, that Jesus is now seated at the Father's right hand. If Jesus is in heaven and we're on earth, how then is he going to legislate our behavior in the church, which is his body? The only way that I know he can legislate that is through his will. And that is the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, of the New Testament. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was done away. When? At the cross. So, what are we under today? We are under what Paul would call the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2. It's identified as the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1, verse 25. It, it is a divine law. It's a divine standard. And we appeal to that standard. So you and I today, what do we do? We look to Scripture. And we believe that Scripture regulates our conduct. That, that is, it regulates our conduct in the sphere of service and also in the sphere of worship. Now, having said all of that, I want you to now think with me for a moment or two about the demands of authority in worship. Now, back in John chapter 4 at verse 24, Jesus had said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We've talked about the aim of worship. That's Almighty God. We've talked about the attitude of worship. That is, we are to worship God in spirit. We're to have our heart our mind attuned to what's taking place in the various acts of worship. We are to worship God in truth, that is, by his authority. But Jesus said, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's the absolute when it comes to worship. In other words, we're not talking about something that's up for debate. This is not something that you and I can sit down and we can try to decide whether or not we're going we're gonna to do this or do that. That matter has been settled a long time ago. Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's an obligation. It is a divine obligation. Back in John chapter 3, you remember when Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, of course, had come to Jesus by night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the signs which you do unless God is with him. Jesus then said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought he was talking about a, a physical birth, didn't he? So he asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. That is an obligatory term. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you want to be a member of the kingdom? You want to be one of my disciples? What do you have to do? You must be born again. Same term. So in John 4, verse 24, when Jesus talks about worship, he said if we're going to be pleasing to Almighty God, we must worship him in spirit, that is with the right attitude, and in truth, that is by his authority. Now sometimes we ask the, word, we ask the question, 
What is truth? You remember Pontius Pilate asked that question? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The word of God, the gospel of Christ, scripture is simply truth. That's what we're appealing to. Now, having said all of that, I want you to think with me now for just a moment or two about some of the challenges that confront us in our worship to God. And I have listed in the outline, and I hope you got a copy of the outline, four types of worship that are set forth in the scriptures. As we look, as we look through the New Testament, there are four distinct types of worship that are, that are born out through a study of the word of God. First, we read of vain worship in Matthew chapter 15. In this context, Jesus talks about those who honor him with, with their mouth and with their lips, but he said, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And according to Jesus, this type of worship is governed by the commandments of men and women. There's a second type of worship that we read about in the scriptures. And it is called ignorant worship. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to the city of Athens, the Bible tells us in verse 16, his spirit was stirred within him because the whole city was given over to idolatry. Here were people steeped in pagan idolatry. And then uh, in that context, Paul having discussed the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, with the philosophers of his day, no doubt uh, combating what they had to say in the synagogues. The Bible says that as he passed by and beheld their devotions, he said, the, the Bible says that he came to an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And Luke says that Paul said, whom you therefore ignorantly worship. Here were people that were worshiping any number of gods. We live in a day and time when pluralism reigns. People today have no problem worshiping any number of gods. So that would be classified as ignorant worship, as Paul talks about in Acts 17. And then in Colossians 2, verse 23, there is what is called will worship. And I want to just read for you some of the definitions that are given regarding will worship. Will worship denotes self-made religion. Thayer describes it as worship which one devises and prescribes for himself. Contrary to the contents and nature of the faith which ought to be directed to Christ. And then Vine in his commentary says it is, he characterizes it as voluntarily adopted worship. Whether unbidden or forbidden. And then another definition. A form of worship which a man devises for himself. Another definition. Self-made religion. Everett, Her Everett Harrison describes it as a worship not prescribed by God but only by the will of man. Now I took these excerpts from the website Christian Courier. And I, th I think you would do well 
to go to the website. Christian Courier, Wayne Jackson, his sons, do a lot of writing on this particular site. And they have a lot of excellent material, particularly as it relates to this subject. But as we think about vain worship, ignorant worship, will worship, there is a sense in which there's a correlation there, particularly between will worship and vain worship. Vain worship, of course, has to do with those who are, who are honoring the commandments, the traditions of men in lieu of what the word of God teaches. And then will worship. It's the idea that, hey, whatever pleases me, whatever I want to do, that's what I'm going to do. Now, with regard to vain worship or will worship, let, let me just ask this question. How many times have you heard somebody talk about certain things in worship or certain things in, in the name of religion? And they may say, well, it, it may not say that in Scripture. Or the Bible may not talk about that per se, but I like it. Or I want it. Or that's what I want to do. We have to be very careful when it comes to our worship to God. Nowhere, and I would, I would encourage you, go back and begin in the patriarchal age. And then look very carefully at the Mosaic dispensation. And then I would challenge you to look page by page at the New Testament. And we're living today under the Christian dispensation. You will never find one instance, not one example, whereby God has allowed men and women to dictate how they're going to worship him. Not one time. It's not our prerogative to say, hey, we're going to worship this way. Or we're going to do things this way because we like it or because we want to do it this way or because we think that's the way we ought to do it. Nowhere has God given man the liberty to do that. Now let's just step back and think about it in, in this fashion for a minute. God the Father is our creator. Is that not right? That's correct, isn't it? God the Father is our redeemer. Is that not true? Absolutely, it's true. God the Father is the one who has given us this book that we call the Bible. That's true. Does it not stand to reason that the creator of heaven and earth, the one who framed this world, the one who made us in his own image and likeness, does it not stand to reason that he has every right to tell us how to approach him in worship? The very idea that men and women would think that they are at liberty to decide how they will worship God is presumptuous. Now let me give you an example, an Old Testament example of somebody who gave God what he thought God would accept in worship, Cain. Go back and read Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Abel, of course, brought forth from the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. Cain did what? He brought forth from the fruit of the ground. The Bible says that God had respect unto Abel in his offering, but unto Cain in his offering he had not respect. Let me ask this question. Do you think that there was a difference made by God in their two offerings? The answer would be yes. 
Well, what about Cain? I mean, surely he was sincere. I'm not questioning that. What about the time it took for him to cultivate that offering? I'm not questioning that. What about the expense that he may have borne in, in bringing that offering to God? I'm not questioning that either. The difference, though, was Abel offered by faith and Cain did not. Listen to what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How does faith come? Paul said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now there are a lot of things that, that, that take place in the realm of religion under the guise of worship that when you and I begin to look at what the Bible has to say, the bottom line is this. They don't meet the litmus test of truth. There are a lot of people that are worshiping God in a manner and in a way not prescribed by the New Testament. I'm well aware of the arguments that are out there for a lot of things. Let me just illustrate it a couple of ways, and then we're going to look at true worship. There are a lot of people today, as a matter of fact, I would say most people in the religious world, they use instrumental music in their worship to God. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find authority to use an instrument in our worship to God. God told us what he wants. He wants singing. Ephesians 5 verse 19, Colossians 3 verse 16. That's what God said. Sometimes people will appeal to the Old Testament. They'll go back to the book of Psalms. And they'll say, well, didn't God in the Psalms have something to say about worshiping him using various instruments of music? My answer would be yes. But we're not talking about the Old Testament. We're not talking about the book of Psalms. That book has been preserved for our learning. That book is a great book, 150 chapters in the Psalms. But we don't go back to the Old Testament and, and implement certain things that they did in their worship to God. I mean, if we're going to go back and, and bring, bring out the instrument, why not animal sacrifices? I mean, didn't they use those in their worship to God? Now, sometimes people will say, well, we like it. I mean, that's the argument that some people will use. Let me ask this question. Does God like it? It's not about whether or not I like it. It's, it's about whether or not God likes it. Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means to do it by his authority. Look at the repercussions that Cain faced because he didn't follow the word of God. Now, there are a lot of things, as I said a moment ago, that people are doing in the realm of religion that when you begin to look at what Scripture has to say, you can't find it. There are a lot of people that have choirs and solos. And I said last week, we do not worship God by proxy. When we read in the Scriptures about singing, we understand that all of us engage in the act of singing. It's not some special group. It's not a group performance. 
but rather it's every individual Christian engaging in that act of worship. And then also, what about women preachers? What about women teachers? Now we talk about that which is governed by the commandments of men. Are there not religious organizations today that have had conferences and they've tried to decide whether or not they're going to allow women to teach or preach or engage in a higher profile in their worship to God? Well, the answer is yes. And I want you to hear me very carefully. When it comes to women in the realm of preaching or teaching, we understand that women can teach. They're supposed to teach. Read Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. They're just not to teach over men. Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man. In 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's not about ability. There are women who are extremely knowledgeable in the word of God. As a matter of fact, there are some women, I, I am convinced, they know the book from cover to cover. They know it better than a lot of men. It's not about ability, it's about authority. That's the point. It's about what God in his word legislates. That's why it's not up for debate. That, that's why we don't sit down and say, well, are we going to do this or do that? Why? Because God has already spoken. God has already told us what he wants. Now, with regard to true worship, in John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus talked about true worship. And he said, the Father seeketh such to worship him. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying God is interested in men and women worshiping him in spirit, that is with the right attitude, and in truth, that is by his authority. Now let me make this, let me make this observation. There are five acts of worship that are spelled out in the New Testament, insofar as I can tell. We talk about the preaching of the word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. In Acts chapter 20 at verse 7, when the apostle Paul was in the city of Troas with other disciples, what did they do? Well, we know one thing they did. They partook of the Lord's Supper. That's a second act of worship. But they also had the preaching of the gospel. Now, let me just step back and, and say this. Some would say that a better way to appeal to people and a better way to, to reach out to the masses would be to dramatize the word of God. Many are doing that. Why not? Because Paul said, preach the word. Because in the early church, that's what they had. In the Roman Grecian world, those people were masters at the art of theater. Listen, had God wanted drama, he had the cradle for it right there. But the fact of the matter is, that's not what God wanted. When, when the early disciples were scattered abroad, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, that those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. That is, they went everywhere doing what? Sowing 
the seed of the kingdom of God. So when we come to God in our worship, what do we do? We, we partake of the Lord's Supper. We remind ourselves of the body that Jesus gave on Calvary for us. We partake of the cup, the fruit of the vine, which reminds us of the blood that was shed in his death. And then we give of our means. It is a free will offering. We are to purpose in our heart, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. We are to give every first day of the week, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And then also, what do we do? We pray. Now, interestingly, we talk about the role of women. And I said that, that women are not allowed to usurp authority over the men. And it's not a matter of ability, but rather it's a matter of authority. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. If you look at, that, if you look at chapter 2, back in verse 4, the Bible says God would have all men. The word men there includes both male and female, men and women. That is, God desires that creation be saved. But down in verse 8, he said, I will that men, that is, male only. And we're talking about there, in that context, about worship. God's desire is that men pray in that leadership capacity. And then, and then our singing. We sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We are singing, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, at verse 16, with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Now, when it's all said and done and the dust is cleared, the acts of worship that I have described to you, they may not be glitzy and fashionable by the standards of the world. When the world looks at the worship of the New Testament church, the response may be, that's dull, that's boring. I don't see how you people do that. Listen, it's not about a fashion show. It's not about glitz. It's not about glamour. It's not about what I want or anybody else wants. It's about what God wants. And the bottom line is, the acts of worship that we engage in, every Sunday when we come together and we go through the various acts of worship, it may not be fashionable by by the vast majority of the people in the world. But I can promise you this, it is in accordance with the book. It's what the Bible says to do. And the bottom line is, it really doesn't matter what people think. What matters is what the Bible has to say. If we're not following, listen, if we're not gonna follow the Bible, and I'm grateful that we have a congregation that we have people here, and I, and I appreciate each of you because you want to follow the Bible. But let me tell you what, if we're not going to follow the scriptures, we might as well close up shop and go home because we're wasting our time. Either we do it God's way or we don't do it at all. That's the way I feel. And I would rather preach for a congregation that wanted to hear the truth I'd rather preach before 15 people or with 15 people present and have a house full of people that didn't want to hear the truth. It's all about the truth. Jesus said the truth shall set, shall set you free. Would you pray with me?
Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the many blessings and favors that we enjoy in this life. We're thankful for the opportunity, the privilege that we have to approach your throne of grace and mercy, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, we ask that you would give us a heart inclined to do your will. Forgive us of our faults, our shortcomings, our failures. May we strive to the best of our ability to worship you as you have prescribed. And may, and may we, in a kind, loving, and truthful way, share what, your, share what your book says about worship with those who are in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I plead to you, come to Christ. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our plea is to you to come to the Lord. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus is the son of God, Hebrews 11. Without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to him. And then repent of every sin, Acts 2, verse 38. Confess his name before others, Matthew 10, 32. And then the Bible says you need to be immersed in a watery grave. And in so doing, you'll rise to walk in newness of life. You'll contact the blood of Christ. Every sin will be washed away, Acts 22, 16. And then you just need to be faithful till death, the promise being the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, could we encourage you to come home? The Bible says, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. We, we would love to pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing.